Welcome to the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today, our guest is Mark Calabria, who's a senior advisor at the Cato Institute and former director of the FHFA. He, prior to that, was chief economist for Vice President Mike Pence, and prior to that was a longtime Senate banking staffer working uh, with Senator Richard Shelby and, and Senator Phil Graham. Uh, he's also the author of a new forthcoming book, Shelter for the Storm, which is coming out in the first quarter of 2023, which you can pre-order today at Amazon. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. John, it's such a pleasure to be here. Well, Mark, first, I want to get into your background and what first got you interested in economics and FinReg um, prior to your uh, incredible and uh, fascinating career in policy? Thank you. I think it really honestly goes all back to that change from uh, undergrad to grad school. I finished my undergrad uh, in the early 90s uh, when we first started talking about jobless recessions and it was the aftermath of the savings and loan crisis, real estate problems in New England, Texas, other places. And so I really entered grad school at a time, A, because it was a weak job market, so grad school looked like a great thing to do, and I was certainly interested in it kind of in general, but also in that environment of really talking about the most recent crisis. And it's really something that has kind of kept with me during my entire career is thinking about, you know, the stability of our financial system, uh, the impact of property markets on financial stability. Um, I ended up most of my focus in grad school being on market structure and dust organization. So I sort of have come to finance and economics more from a market structure perspective more than anything else, um, but certainly have come to this from that shadow of the savings and loan crisis, having an impact not just in our country, but on my career choices and my life choices. Well, it's fascinating. I feel like there's uh, a number of people in uh, financial regulation and in sort of the monetary policy sphere who kind of have that uh, industrial organization uh, kind of background interest in, in how uh, market microstructure works, and, you know, people like Daryl Duffy and, and others coming to mind. Um, so that, that's fascinating. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, just moving straight into FHFA here, you know, what is the FHFA? Uh, if you could explain to our listeners and what's its role as a financial regulator, uh, I know it, it, you know, came into being during the financial crisis when Fannie, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were going into conservatorship, i.e., you know, they were you know, troubled with all these mortgages, uh, uh, distressed mortgages on their balance sheets. And I remember uh, you know, then Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, decided to put them into you know, conservatorship. He fired the CEOs of, of, uh, of these GSEs, and, and they effectively became uh, – you know, they were put on the balance sheet of the government. I know FHFA also has a seat on FSOC, which is also a product of the global financial crisis. But could you get into a bit in no, terms of... A, there's a lot there. John. There's, there's a lot there, up. but could, could yes. you give us a, 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 a sort of history of the FHFA and, and what its mandated role is and and, um, and what it's been doing? Happy to. And of course, it is the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Uh, it was created in 2008. Now the history of this, uh, you know, I've had the fortune not only running it at one point, but but being the primary drafter of the legislation that created it, that eventually passed in two thousand eight, 
But this really started, at least for me, in 2003 uh, when the accounting scandals at Freddie Mac first came to light. Uh, and I was then working again on the Banking Committee for Senator Shelby. We started working on a reform bill 2004. And one of our takeaways, because it was almost really just shocking to think about just weeks before the accounting scandals at Freddie came to light, the then, the then regulator, OFAO, the Office of Federal Housing Enterprise Oversight, you know, had issued its annual report to Congress and had said glowing things about the accounting and the stability of Fannie and Freddie. And so it really kind of shocked us to really kind of look it in the face and say, there's really nobody watching. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, and again, I don't, I'm not going to take away anything from, I think, many of the hardworking people at OFAO who tried to do the right thing. But in the early 2000s, the regulator was really just did not have the regulatory statutory tools it needed. It, many, it lacked many of the statutory tools that other financial regulators like FDIC had. Uh, and it was just politically outgunned. So uh, our reform efforts began in 2003. There was a Shelby bill in 2004 and again in 2005, um, partly because if you really, it's hard to imagine the um, headiness of the housing market in 2005, where the view was prices only go up and great wealth making machine. And so there was a tremendous amount of pushback I mean, at least today, you can suggest that prices go down and there may be stability concerns from housing. In 2005, for you to suggest such as, as I did, you know, you were certainly looked at as an anomaly, if not crazy. Um, so all that said, it was near impossible to get financial reform done on Fannie and Freddie in the years leading up to their failure, even though many of us um, raised that alarm bell, you know, worked on legislation and tried to get it done. And then when the crisis hit, uh, Congress had changed at this point. Uh, Senator Dodd was chairman of the Banking Committee. Senator Shelby was a senior Republican, the ranking member. Uh, and so what actually happened was Senator Dodd had a number of proposals to deal with the housing market, one of which became hope for homeowners. Um, and Senator Shelby's response was, you know, we are we're open to providing assistance to homeowners if you agree to have GSE reform as part of the package. Uh, Senator Dodd said yes, and, and so that's why we were able to get mostly what the Shelby bills with a few tweaks incorporated into what became the House and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, which took OFEO as well as the Federal Housing Finance Board, which was the regulator of the federal home loan banks, and merged them in. So starting in 2008, uh, we had a new regulator for Fannie and Freddie of the federal home loan banks. Um, as you touched upon, you know, Fannie and Freddie were looking like they were going to start failing in the summer of 2008. They were taken into conservatorship. You know, by then, FHFA had been put in place. Uh, Jim Lockhart, who was the last OFAO director and the first FHFA director, you know, worked with Paulson. They put them in the conservatorship. I really want to emphasize, uh, you know, having worked on this, we framed the conservatorship provisions very much on those of the FDIC. We never imagined it would go, nor never did Congress ever intend for it to go more than six months. So the fact that you know we're over a decade and uh, it's post-2008 really is, to, to me, completely contrary to congressional intent. But we are where we are. And part of this was, of course, the sense from, from Treasury as, as well as uh, others of Washington about what concerns would happen, you know, in terms of the agency debt market. You know, we know this... Um, from both his books that he's written in terms of uh, Treasury Secretary Paulson as well as other statements. For instance, he, he went to China 
immediately near therein. Uh, the Chinese were very large holders of Fannie and Freddie securities, and of course, we now know that there were attempts by Russia to get China to both dump their agency securities. So there was some concern, um, not just financial stability, but also foreign policy concerns around them. I'll say as an aside, uh, you look at the congressional record and it was very clear, Shelby and others mentioning, listen, we know China holds this debt, but so what? We're not here to bail them out. Um, and so one of the things that's lost is that one of the intentions of HERA was not to harden the implied guarantee. And, and can you explain what HERA is? It's a Housing Economic Recovery Act that created FHFA. So the intent here was to actually end the implied guarantee. And this is, you know, a bit of a weird topic because, of course, uh, implied guarantee almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. You know, how, how can it be a guarantee if it's implied? Um, so over the decades since Fannie and Freddie's creation, there really had become a perception that because they had a government charter, um, that they were you know, backed by Congress. Of course, there is no explicit guarantee. They've no, there's never been a guarantee provided by Congress. Um, but, you know, the financial market participants, who, of course, held lots of agencies, and it's also important to keep in mind, the agency debt market, Fannie Freddie debt market, is one of the biggest in the world. And in fact, you know, in 2020, there were more agency, Fannie and Freddie, along with Ginnie Mae Securities, issued than Treasuries. So this is really one of the biggest fixed income markets in the world. Uh, a lot of our financial institutions, uh, even with the failure of Fannie and Freddie, there were over a dozen small banks that failed from losses on preferred shares in Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and were, you know, the debt to take a loss, you would have certainly have seen dozens of more banks fail. So you have a, a situation where you have two extremely leveraged companies uh, with their debt held throughout the financial system. Uh, and of course, just as you later saw with Dodd-Frank, Title II of Dodd-Frank's resolution authority, there was a resolution authority created in 2008 for Fannie and Freddie where losses could be and should be imposed upon creditors. But of course, that was not the choice that was made. Um, and so you had them in conservatorship since then. The primary purpose of FHFA, of course, is to be a safety and soundness regulator for, for FHFA. Um, it had, for Fannie and Freddie, it has somehow over time kind of taken, because of the conservatorship, you know, has really you know, kind of dulled the sense of being a regulator at FHFA. Uh, a, because it's easier to think, do things via conservatorship, you just tell the companies, rather than promulgating through rules and regulation. But you've also lost a sense of arm's length regulation. It's to me critically important for any regulator, you know, not to get captured. And of course, it's just a reality that every regulator, whether it's the credit unions or the big banks or the Fed, um, there's a degree of capture at every financial regulator. And there's certainly, unfortunately, that at, at FHFA. Um, and so part of this was meant to kind of create that insulation. But at the end of the day, the role of FHFA is to be the regulator for Fannie and Freddie. A lesser role by statute is to be the resolver of a failed GSE. Uh, and unfortunately, the day-to-day -day at FHFA has become to be dominated by the conservatorship. Got it. Well, I feel like it's been uh, an interesting saga from you know, September, autumn of 2008, Fannie and Freddie go into conservatorship. They've been on uh, the balance sheet since, and there's been, I feel like, the saga, it's been you know, 14 years, um, discussions about the net worth sweep. You know, there's still shares of Fannie and Freddie that are being traded and held by some hedge fund managers and 
you know, occasionally I feel like they go on TV, almost like an activist investor in some way to suggest that there's, you know, maybe some reforms coming down the pipeline. Um, and certainly I, I feel like this was maybe in the, you know, after, uh, you know, the, the election of um, President Trump. I, I feel like there was some of that who, uh, you know, people who were over speaking their hand. But I, I totally understand what, what you mean by sort of capture too, because when I was um, working in fixed income asset management, it was interesting because, and this is in the post-crisis era, you know, Ma- uh, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae Securities were sort of thought to be risk-free securities. Of course and, they're not. But, and, and, uh, but they were treated like that in, in the risk models. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is, you know, the, in, I guess, some of this you know, academic literature, there's all this discussion about you know, how do we manufacture risk-free assets because we don't have enough. And um, what's interesting is I feel like in some respects, Fannie uh, and Freddie Securities have sort of become. Uh, I mean, there has been a regulatory demand. I'll say as an aside, you know, it's it's interesting. Post-financial crisis, there was, you know, a lot of criticism thrown out efficient market hypothesis and, and other things. And I'll say for my uh, seven years in the banking committee, I never once heard anybody utter the phrase efficient market hypothesis. Uh, where I'm going with this is I think one of the truly, to me, most dangerous academic notions that has entered financial regulation is this notion of a safe asset. There are no safe assets. It's, for instance, good to remind ourselves, first Pennsylvania bank failed in the 80s due to its treasury holdings. Interest rate losses, of course, in its treasury holding. Nothing is risk-free. And the, and the, and the approach of financial regulation where we treat certain assets as risk-free, I think has been a disaster. It's certainly worth remembering um, that financial regulators pre-2008 treated Greek sovereign debt as risk-free. Of course, when they all knew it was not. Uh, but it gets in its more political process. Um, so I do think we need to have FinRag and the academic conversation around it just abandon this. I mean, I understand just like we talk about a risk-free rate or we talk about a riskless asset, those are really helpful classroom abstractions. But they... Or a useful dis- benchmark. Maybe. They're useful benchmark, but they're not reality. Uh, and, of course, we know that models aren't supposed to be reality. But in this case, they so distort the conversation. Now, some of this is, of course, um, self-serving. I mean, uh, when I first joined the banking committee in the Senate in 2001, one of the first meetings I had was a couple of guys from hedge funds coming in and, you know, trying to convince me why the banking committee needed to push the IMF to bail out Argentina. And, of course, we're all familiar with the problems in Puerto Rico, um, one of my favorite stories from, from uh, financial services history, if you will, uh, is uh, in the late 60s, um, Penn Central Railroad um, was uh, one of the big banks, Goldman was their commercial paper underwriter. Um, and um, because at that time we had the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, which of course we thankfully got rid of, well, for railroads, all of their debt issuance had to be approved by the ICC. So you had a common perception that railroad debt would be backed by the government. And of course, that was the common perception with Penn Central. And of course, when Penn Central failed, it was not bailed out. Uh, And Goldman almost failed for the litigation on being sued for being their commercial paper underwriter. And so I really want to emphasize Congress has never created this implied guarantee behind Fannie Freddie, but it's been created by Wall Street. It is a, oh, you should rescue me. It's like the same argument with when Wall Street you know, gathered around to try to bail out New York in the 70s. Oh, you know, it's, it's the government. So some of this to me is just self-serving spin. Nothing is risk-free. Everything is bought with risk. If you're treating it as risk-free, you're not doing your job as a asset manager or as a, or as a financial regulator. 
and again, I recognize that so much of the market, and we know, for instance, that you know PIMCO and others heavily lobbied Treasury in 2008 to make sure that their agency holdings um, were, were, were taken care of. And I don't blame everybody's got a right to lobby the government to cover their losses. The problem is the government steps in and does it all the time. Uh, and that's how we need, you know, policymakers need to be held account that, um, you know, you're not expected to honor imaginary guarantees that are on paper. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, speaking of, of sort of taking risk, I want to uh, sort of move into, I think, the, you know, the, clearly the greatest part of your legacy as FHFA director, and uh, that being the capital rule uh, for Fannie and Freddie. Uh, could you explain a little bit about like, you know, how the Fannie Freddie balance sheets operate and how leverage works? Because I, I think there's a bit of confusion, I think, with, you know, Fannie and Freddie, people just assume they're part of the government. And, you know, and, uh, and, you know and, and even the question of balance sheets. So there's a division of views. Um, the Congressional Budget Office, and, you know, you and I both worked on the Health and Congressional Budget Office is of the view that Fannie and Freddie are on the balance sheet. And, of course, the Office of Management and Budget White House is of the view they're not. Um, and so it is important to keep in mind there is no statutory guarantee of Fannie and Freddie debt. It's an assumption that government will rescue them because government has rescued similar actors in, in, in the past. And, of course, unfortunately, um, the regulatory system that has built up by this you know, by the financial regulators has reinforced that view. And of course, the fact that the Fed uses agencies during, you know, quantitative easing and other uh, monetary operations reinforces that view as well. So part of the problem you do have is that the financial regulatory system itself, outside of congressional intent, has, has taken actions that reinforce the perception and the reality of, of, of assistance for FHFA. So rather than Fannie and Freddie, but so let's start with this premise. I mean, the real intent of HERA, the Housing Economic Recovery Act, was to from two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, it was created FHFA, was to create a regulator for Fannie and Freddie that would have supervisory powers and responsibilities on par with other financial service regulators. And so it was a sense of well, you know, like it or not. You know, these are highly leveraged financial institutions. There need to be a regulatory structure to protect them. Um, so one of that, of course, let me say aside, I, mean, I, think, I like to actually think my biggest legacy that I hope to stick is simply getting the agency to see itself as a financial regulator. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, you would see this, you know, during my nomination process and some of my time there where some of the press would characterize me as a housing regulator and stuff like that. And FHA is not a housing regulator. It regulates mortgage lenders. It's... It's no more a housing regulator than FDIC is an auto regulator simply because banks hold auto loans. But part of that narrative is meant to distract from the fact that it is a safety and soundness regulator. The problem fundamentally is that nobody, you know, most of Washington doesn't want to be regulated for safety and soundness. Um, and there are no on-budget, you know, statutory subsidies behind Fannie and Freddie. It's really just an attempt to, you know, use implied guarantees and risk-taking. So the consensus, you know, again, I go back to 2008 was Senator Dodd and a number of Democrats coming together and saying we wanted to do something for uh, homeowners in distress. We wanted to create a trust fund to provide affordable housing. Uh, and then the, you know, ask if you were the other side of that deal from Shelby and the Republicans was, okay, but we need to set this up in a way where the taxpayers never asked to bail out these entities and that they have um, 
regulation on par with other institutions. Uh, and I would sometimes, you know, half halfly joke that my objective was to have Fannie uh, only be as highly leveraged, poorly managed, and you know, mismanaged and poorly regulated as Citibank. That's funny. <laughs> and, and again, because, you know, how do you get them to be on par? And so certainly, you know, we started a system of just trying to get the agency and the entities themselves to see themselves as a large financial institution that need to be regulated on par. Because again, by size, Fannie and Freddie are, you know, multi-trillion assets. I mean, they are SIFIs in all but name. They're comparable to J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells. I mean, again, um, if Fannie's not, you know, significantly important, nobody is. Uh, and so... I guess the main difference is that their, their gains and losses are being transferred to the Treasury Department. They can the be. Network. They have been. They don't necessarily need to be. In fact, one of the other things that we set up when I was there was a resolution regime. We started doing living wills, like those done under the Dodd-Frank for the largest banks. We did this for Fannie and Freddie. This is OLA kind of... Uh, yeah, the orderly resolution stuff that came out of Dodd-Frank. So we copied a lot of Dodd-Frank. But honestly, Dodd-Frank copied a lot of HERA. It took many of the things we did for Fannie and Freddie to apply to uh, the large banks. Uh, and so we really, you know, we brought over staff from FDIC. We brought over, for instance, some of the team that worked on any MAC resolution to help create a resolution team. Um, we did uh, coordinating exercises with the SEC and with the Fed on, you know, were Fannie and Freddie fail? How would we resolve them in a way that did not cost taxpayer money? You know, how would we? So there's been a lot of exercise done internally with Fannie and Freddie. So my view is they can be resolved today without cost to the taxpayer and without disruption to the mortgage market. We know that. Do I think that this administration or really almost any administration would follow through with that? Probably not. But again, they certainly won't um, if the infrastructure is not there to do it. And so uh, I left behind an infrastructure to appropriately resolve Fannie and Freddie in the case of insolvency without taxpayer support. So any future bailouts of Fannie and Freddie will be bailouts purely of choice, not necessity. But that said, uh, you know, you don't want to, you know, rely on resolution mechanisms as your first line. Res resolution mechanisms, whether it's for a large bank or whether it's for Fannie Mae, you really want that to be your last option, not your first. Or after, you know, when things go wrong, I guess. Exactly. You know, it's, uh, this is like a, a, a you know, post-crisis sort of uh, uh, tool versus a preventative tool so, in, in the same way that sort of capital rules – were at least you know the Dodd Frank capital yeah. rules for you know for banks, but I guess you know those left out the GSEs community. And both so both in the bank context as well as the GSE context, uh, I mean your insolvency is just that it, it is the assets being worth less than the liabilities, and so the way you want to avoid that, of course, is to have sufficient equity to cover that. Uh, Fannie and Freddie went into two thousand eight being leveraged over sixty to one. So my view was they were guaranteed to fail. You know, you, nobody that kind of leverage um, survives a crisis. And, you know, keep in mind that, you know, even Lehman and, and, and Bear were less leveraged than Fannie and Freddie. Uh, but again, going into crises at that levels of leverage, particularly when your assets are predominantly uh, in a very volatile asset class like housing. Um, and so one of the things we instituted, and again, I. I don't want to take too much credit because Congress told us to do it. And I'll set aside the fact that Congress told FHFA in 2008 to do a capital rule, and it 
It took about a decade to even for the agency to even think about it. So from my view, that's just massive dereliction of duty not to carry out a capital rule. Um, but one of the important provisions of the capital rule, and this is one thing where I think Fannie and Freddie are so critically different than banks. Depositories really are inherently pro-cyclical. You're going to expand business with the business cycle, and you're going to contract otherwise. Fannie and Freddie certainly act pro-cyclical, but that's not what their charters are. That's not why they were created. They were created you know, to be a floor under the market in time of stress. And so even in their charters, it says they're required to set terms and conditions so as not to have excessive use of their facilities. And so the market's not supposed to depend on Fannie and Freddie day to day. Of course, that's, we've gotten away from that and there are whole segments in the mortgage market that only exist because of Fannie and Freddie. But all that said, the here in 2008 required the capital rule to have a going concern value. So it would so it would be not only would Fannie and Freddie be able to suffer losses in the downturn, but they'd still maintain sufficient capital to do new business because of course their purpose is to be able to do new business in a stress environment. So I hope it sticks, but one of the things that I was working on was getting the companies and FHFA to, to essentially re-embrace the charters to remember why Fannie and Freddie are here um, and to get the companies to see themselves as these counter-cyclical firefighters rather than, you know, the arsonist who shows up and burns the house. Or as I like to say, you know, for, the, for those of our college listeners, um, you know, you, 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 the, 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 the guy who comes over at the night of the party and is, you know, the loudest guy at the party doing keg stands and such, he's not going to show up the next day and help you clean up. And you got to remember that Fannie and Freddie's role is to be the guy who comes by the next day to help you clean up, not the loudest guy at the party. And historically, they've been the loud guy at the party, the, 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 the loudest drunk at the party. That's been them in the mortgage market. Uh, and getting them to understand and see and, and getting them to realign their behaviors with their actual statutory mandate was a big part of what. And it gets at the fact that so much of regulation really is... Um, soft in a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's the culture around it. It's the expectations around it. Uh, and so really resetting a lot of that, I think, was important. For instance, we started corporate culture initiatives, both at Fannie and Freddie, who, in my view, have historically had really broken corporate cultures. But part of it was they never really saw themselves as that counter-cyclical, you know, fireman coming to the rescue. Um, they never saw themselves as responsible for policing behavior in the mortgage market. So, uh, you know, a number of things we had to fix. And unfortunately, there are a whole list of things that are still unfixed at both companies and at FHFA. Now, you know, prior to the capital rule, like what, what was the leverage ratio that Fannie and Freddie were running? I remember well, when I walked in the door, it was a thousand to one, right. <laughs> so, which of course, you know, you, you know, you, you sneeze and you fail. So, I mean, there, there was pretty much no margin. So I, I am happy that um, I, I walked in the door, it was a thousand to one, but I walked out the door, it was about 150 to one. Still too massively leveraged. Uh, we also were able to end the so-called sweep. There was a profit sweep instituted by the Obama administration in, in 2012 that really was meant to box in Fannie and Freddie, contrary to statute. I mean, there's nothing stopping the Obama administration from lobbying Congress and, and getting a new framework. But you really have this profit sweep that was meant to keep them in limbo, which again is completely contrary to what the statute is. So we ended the profit sweep. And the importance here was, if we hadn't done that in 2019, and I'll say this aside, there was no sweep during my tenure. We ended it 
we, we, we formally ended in September 19, but it was ended functionally when I walked in the door. If we hadn't built up capital, Fannie and Freddie would have failed from their COVID losses. So the fact that, you know, you, you never get credit in D.C. apparently for regulator avoiding failures. Right. But we did. We built up capital. We got Fannie and Freddie focused and they survived COVID and they would not have if we hadn't made those choices. So uh, I think that's an, it should be an important win, <laughs> you know, for not having to tap the taxpayer again. But we also changed the mindset. So, for instance, you know, there are um, I mean, this is there's, there's a debate legally over this, but Treasury and many others of the perspective that they have a extended line of credit to Fannie and Freddie that comes out of 2008. My view is the statute very clearly shows that those lines of credits have expired. But um, all that said, these form under the so-called draw. Uh, and I made it very clear to the CEOs and the chairs and said to them, you know, were you to ever come to me for a request with a draw, they better be accompanied by your letters of resignation. Uh, and even that does not guarantee that we'll take any money from the treasury. So simply changing. So for instance, when I walked to the door, Freddie in its financial reports, its 10Ks and Qs, had listed that the taxpayer provided their capital, which was certainly not true, so we made them change that. Um, and, and more disclosure to the appropriate you know, position you know, financially in the company. So I do think, of, I, hope, I hope a big set of accomplishments is simply just resetting the facts and the truth behind a lot of it. I've always said that there's... Um, kind of a mythical narrative and charter around Fannie and Freddie. And then there's the law. <laughs> and unfortunately, the mythical has dominated a lot of the conversations in Washington. And so I really saw a lot of my tenure as, you know, how do we simply get FHFA and Fannie and Freddie to follow the law? You would think that would be, you know, something everybody could agree on. Absolutely. Well, you know, in the post-COVID world, it's amazing just, uh, you know, thinking about the FinReg uh you know, the new FinRag era that we live in and have been living in since Hera and Dodd-Frank and how it you know, was essentially tested in, in 2020 when you know, there was this COVID shock to markets. And I feel like uh, a lot of uh, the, those you know, who are fans of Dodd-Frank, uh, have, there's been a lot of patting on, on the back. Uh, and, and perhaps um, you know, to some degree rightly so in, in, in that at least you know, capital standards were started for, for banks. And I mean, there, there's a a lot of other things in Dodd Frank too that I, I think um, uh, have, have been either worked out since or, or uh, have been sort of rethought a little bit. But uh, I, I think you know there, there's at least some consensus that you know capital rules for banks um, prevented um, uh, uh, some distress. I mean, I'm sure that, you know the, we'll never really know the counterfactual. Um, of, I mean, not to one can get on a rabbit hole in bank capital centers for a long time. It's important to keep in mind that almost all of the capital increases post great financial crisis happened outside of Dodd-Frank. The Basel process and Basel III, which was, a, which, which was an improvement over Basel II, that was independent of Dodd-Frank. Um, and so you already saw a move both to increase the quality because you had a lot of stuff pre-2008 counter capital that was not loss absorbing. So we improved the quality and quantity of capital, but all of that would have happened and did happen independent of Dodd-Frank. So I think there's just too much pat on the back to Dodd-Frank. I mean, my view is that 2008, there was a massive bailout of the financial system by the Federal Reserve, as well as assistance provided across. So I don't really, I mean, to me, that was to kind of say 2008 proved Dodd-Frank work. You know, either they're talking... Or, or not, not Dodd-Frank, but just capital standards in general. Uh, I mean, you know, some of it is because you so much pushed everything out elsewhere. You know, I mean, for instance, 
Certainly, the Fed's actions in March 2020 were a rescue of the broker-dealers to had, had reached their capacity in terms of both treasuries and agencies. Here was a rescue of mortgage rates, if not rates writ large. Um, and so you had a lot of rescues that were provided. Uh, and of course, there were, you know, um, flexibilities given the banks. Uh, and of course, the banks, you know, I saw this with so much of the non-bank mortgage industry relies on lines of credit from commercial banks. Commercial banks were not, <laughs> they were pulling back. They were not looking to extend those lines of credit. So I think there's a lot of fragility in the mortgage market and the financial system writ large that essentially the Fed papered over in 2020. And, and so to me, you know, I still think many of the institutions in question, you know, are, are much too leveraged. Um, but of course there are other problems. I mean, I, you know, I would argue the biggest problem facing the banking industry today is the historically low uh, loan, to you know, loan to deposit ratio. You know, we've, Dodd-Frank has essentially, among other things, pushed the banking industry to be essentially the funder of government, where instead of making loans to small businesses, they're holding treasuries and agencies, which to me is not the way to grow the economy. But that's a whole other separate conversation. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I, I guess at the very least, you know, we can, I guess, agree that um, uh, you know, the, the banks sort of avoid calamity, um, you know, possibly in part due to capital rules. Uh, and then certainly, you know, the GSEs, uh, you know, thanks to your hard work um, in, in um, removing risk from the system at, in Fannie and Freddie and, and um, reducing the amount of leverage and, and um, putting them on a path to you know, having a capital rule um, helps avoid, you know, yeah. another GSE crisis. And then, um, and, and, but for some reason, you know, money market mutual funds, we have not quite uh, yeah. solved that one yet. Uh, there are some serious problems there. And of course, it, it bears saying both for Fannie and Freddie as well as the banks, um, the record and unprecedented amount of household stimulus, whether it was, you know, extended, not only extended amount of unemployment insurance coverage, but who was covered and the relief payments. I mean, is, is, is you, and of course, that's coupled with the fact that people were stuck at home. No, you weren't spending on that European vacation. So the amount of just liquidity that was thrown at households. So one of the reasons, of course, that Fannie and Freddie and the banks were at large came through this is because, and, of, and some of this was, of course, mitigated by our activities on mortgage forbearance. You didn't see the loan delinquencies that you saw in 2008. And so, I mean, I do worry because um, it certainly shouldn't be the precedent that we avoid financial crises by avoiding delinquencies by just flooding households with money. <laughs> I mean, it's probably better in some sense directly helping Main Street than to help Wall Street, but it's also not terribly well-timed. And as we've learned, it results in tremendous amount of inflation. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, get, to, we'll get back to fiscal policy and monetary policy in a minute. But just to sort of close the note on, on the FinReg side of things, you were removed from office by President Biden following the Supreme Court ruling. And uh, your, I think one thing that's uh, a fascinating and, and fantastic part of your legacy <laughs> is uh, that your successor, uh, Sandra Thompson, has actually kept the rule in place with some tweaks. I'm curious, um, could, could you explain it, like that whole process and, and what happened there? I'm, I mean, it is actually- It's a kind of administrative law questions sure. in terms of, you know, uh, what kind of agency heads uh, 
uh, you know, president can fire, and, and you know, what was sure. that Supreme Court uh, ruling all about? What was that case all and, about? And it, it was known as the Collins case. It started out as Collins versus Mnuchin, ended up as Collins versus Yellen. And, and of course, the bit of an irony is that the uh, removal language in HERA in question, I wrote myself like 15 years ago. So it's, it's one of these weird things where, you know, what was declared unconstitutional that I did the legal research on and, and still believe is constitutional. So it gets back to fundamentally, um, whether you want to think of it as the under the unitary theories of the executive, but it really comes down to the constitutional requirement for the president to make sure that the laws are faithfully executed. And so the debate, and again, I should, I should qualify this, as I'm not a lawyer, even though I've worked on many of these topics from an administrative law and, and a legislative side, but the debate fundamentally gets to is the president able to fulfill his constitutional requirement to see that the laws are faithfully executed if he cannot fire at will people who are executing those laws? Um, there's a school of thought, again, the unitary executive that takes the view that it's simply the president cannot fulfill those responsibilities unless he's able to remove people at will. I, I'm not of that view, quite frankly. I mean, I understand it. Um, a, I would say, I don't think it's strongly grounded in the Constitution. It's not without grounding. There is an argument there. There is a logic to it. But it's not based on an explicit sort of the president should be able to remove who, who, who he wants. Um, and certainly when we drafted HERA in 2008, it was very much within the norm of constitutional law, which of course has changed since then uh, over the direction of independent agencies. Um, and so the debate was whether the head of FHFA could be removed at will or whether it could only be removed for cause. And this is my, my disagreement with my unitary executive friends, is I do believe that an agency head who is not carrying out the law faithfully can be removed because that's for cause. So you have, a, you have an ability to remove person. And in fact, the irony is I was, in my view, largely removed for following the law. So, so again, the actual you know, result of the of the decision. Uh, so you had a number of shareholders to Fannie and Freddie who sued after the Third Amendment. Here's the other irony: the case when it started was never about me. This case, this was litigation that started before I was ever in place. It's litigation that goes back to the so-called Third Amendment profit sweep of 2012, and of course, that was signed by Ed DeMarco, who was an acting director, and it's generally accepted that acting directors can be removed at will. And I would go as far to argue that you never would have had the profit sweep in place had it not been but for an acting. Any, my view, any permanent director would have pushed back on the White House. But Ed, you know, my view, Ed didn't have that luxury because he was acting. So there's a bit of an irony that uh, the litigation itself, the plaintiffs take the view that, you know, they were harmed because the structure of the agency is unconstitutional because the director's not removed what will, when the fact is that they were probably helped by that, if anything. Um, so that made it to the Supreme Court. And this was, of course, following a year after the CFPB case that, that got to the, the structure of uh, CFPB. And of course, I think there are fundamental differences uh, between CFPB and FHFA. Um, but of course, the court did not see it that way. Uh, and so we ended up in a, in a position where um, the Supreme Court said that the FHFA director could be removed at will. Um, now, of course, the Biden administration, we have a number of positions in government, such as, you know, it's it's not unusual for, say, CIA director or FBI director, obviously, there have been departures from this, to be kept. Um, 
So, and despite the fact that then Senator Biden voted for an independent FHFA, you know, the view of this administration was, you know, we don't like what Calabria is doing. He's, he's, he's following the law. We can't have that. Uh, they didn't quite articulate it that way. But at the end of the day, you know, they decided that they wanted to move on. Um, again, you know, their initial choice was not Sandra Thompson, who is a longtime career. Uh, she had come to FHFA from FDIC. Um, and she eventually got the, the nomination. Um, and again, she'll be removed when a Republican comes in, you know, because that's, that's the new norm. And as you know, at the beginning of the Biden administration, a number of positions like, you know, general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board and people at, you know, the service academy boards and stuff like that, there really was an unprecedented wholesale removal of people from those positions in a way that had never been done before. Um, and the general sense among Republicans is that's now the rule. Everybody goes. Um, of course, there's really no reason why this doesn't apply to the Fed, for instance. I mean, the, the, the chair of the Fed or the, or the vice chairs of the Fed, those aren't board. Those are positions in addition to their board seat. Uh, and so certainly on the logic of Collins, you, know, you could be removed from them. Um, and so I do worry uh, because in Collins clear, very clearly applies to the OCC. And of course, we've got that case with the CFPB. And of course, we know that means that most of the FDIC board, a good chunk of it's no longer independent either. So I do worry in terms of financial stability, um, the temptation for any White House to want to engineer an expansion in credit or particularly an expansion of the housing market leading up to election is going to be incredibly strong. Uh, and so I worry that we, much of our financial regulatory system is now very heavily politicized. And we've seen a loss of independence from the political process, from the, from the White House process, that I think ultimately will end up in more crises because the temptation really to ease credit. And you've seen this. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, most indicators are that the housing market is softening. Uh, you've got a number of markets where prices are actually falling. Um, but what is the response of the Biden administration? Ease credit standards. You know, we're seeing these things where it's like, who needs a down payment? It's, the, you know, so I worry that, you know, rather than focusing on the property markets is what any regulator should be doing at this moment. You know, the focus is on expanding uh, an agenda of, of pushing people into unsustainable loans. And again, I think if the regulatory system was more independent, you'd have less of this. So I'm very worried about what I think the long-run outcome for the Collins case will be. I mean, obviously, I'm not unbiased since it put me out of a job, and I, and I, and I wrote the underlying language and have some pride of ownership. But this really threatens the independence of our entire financial regulatory system. And I think ultimately that, that won't end up well. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, short-term, the solution would be to take you know, the OCC and FHFA and make them boards. And that gets you a short-term solution. But the logic of Collins um, does have a strong impact on boards overall. And I think it's far to say, um, I certainly think in the current environment, you could count at least Thomas and Alito and maybe even Gorsuch in the camp of seeing any independent regulators such as the Fed is, is unconstitutional. So I think we're headed for a um, continuing interesting period in terms of financial regulation going forward. Absolutely. What I feel in terms of you know, politicization of finance and uh, you know, government promotion of credit, uh, yeah, I, I feel like if the uh, 
you know, student loan forgiveness uh, saga of late, uh, just a few months ahead of the election, yeah. isn't uh, a sign of uh, some movement toward you know further politicization of uh, finance credit access. I feel like that that may be uh, a good example. So you know, just to close the note here on on FHFA, uh, you know, in in one, I think you know, I think one, it's a huge victory that your successor is has kept the capital rule in place with some minor tweaks, um, and, and is a huge part of your legacy. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, going forward, you know, there's this always classic question of, you know, will Fannie and Freddie remain in conservatorship or eventually be privatized? And, you know, those in the privatization camp, I think, have always said that the capital rule was a precondition to this. I'm curious, you know, one, uh, what's, you know, your own view, um, just succinctly in terms of, you know, conservatorship forever versus privatization? Um, so there's a couple of things that need to be parsed out there. And let me say, I, I think one reason why much of what I was, what, what I did do was kept is because A, everything I did do was grounded in statute. So, I mean, I didn't really, my agenda was not my to have my own agenda. My agenda was what has Congress told us to do, we're gonna do it. Uh, and I think that for an agency, when you ground your agenda in simply fulfilling the explicit will of Congress, you're much more durable and you're in a much stronger position than if it's just whims. Uh, and so I think that was a big part of it. You know, I do want to say, I mean, still, Fannie and Freddie, as by statute, are private entities. They're no, they're no less private than Hertz was going through bankruptcy or Brooks Brothers was going through bankruptcy. You know, these, these never stop being private companies. So under law, sure, they're GSEs, but, the, but they, and, I, and I'm the first to say that the GSEs have an ambiguous structure, but certainly under statute, they currently are private shareholder-owned companies, which is, of course, why the shareholders are still outstanding. Um, they are required to be fixed and gotten out. Either you, either you fix them and put them out or you put them through a receivership and get and eventually get them out that way. Uh, but to me, certainly, there's no way to read the law, in my view, that justifies an endless conservatorship. There is no statutory provision that requires Congress to approve an exit from conservatorship. That's not true. I don't really know how that ever got started as a view. Um, part of this has been a back and forth where some asset managers and holders of agency debt have wanted to use the reform process to get an explicit guarantee, not only on future GSE issuance, but also current GSE issuance, which would obviously be a massive windfall for these companies. And they've had a bit of undue influence, in my opinion, on the process where they've delayed the process. Um, so to me, 90% of the problem with Fannie and Freddie can be fixed if simply the existing agency and Fannie and Freddie all follow the law. The problem, of course, is that much of the stakeholder community in Washington doesn't want them to follow the law uh, because that would require, that would result in a uh, less favorable benefit. And I should lastly say, because this is such a critical point, it goes back to where we started the conversation about market structure. 85% of the debate about the regulation of Fannie and Freddie is fundamentally about differences in market share among originators. There's a whole host of the mortgage industry that solely exists and solely profits because of the existence of Fannie and Freddie. And so anything you do that impacts the cost of Fannie and Freddie relative to the rest of the mortgage market can mean the definition of whether these companies survive or not. So for them, it's a life and death. But you know, at the end of the day, I never thought it was the role, because it's not the role of FHA and statute, to figure out what a non-bank versus bank share in the mortgage industry is. But unfortunately, so much of the conversation in Washington really is caught up with 
not not it's got nothing to do with expand home ownership it's got nothing to do with making housing more affordable it's really all about relative market shares among originators and i think that that's really muddied the waters until i think we get past that um you're not going to see fixed to the system so i, I should certainly end up maybe on a bit of a, of a dour note and say you're certainly not going to see congress do anytime soon um you're not really going to see this administration do anytime soon i think this is going to have to rely on the next administration um, to make a choice. And to me, the choices are going to be, um, you know, perhaps in a little more than two years. A, um, have we gotten through the housing cycle in a way that has not been massive losses? Uh, and that Fannie and Freddie, are, you know, prices are going back up, housing market, Fannie and Freddie are making money, and you can get them out of a new conservatorship. And then I think a Republican administration would look at this and say, we, how can we do this in four years? And if you can't, and Fannie and Freddie are losing money, then I think any Republican administration would look at this and say, well, receivership is what we've got to do because you cannot simply trust a future uh, administration of almost any party to have these entities in conservatorship where they essentially can be looted. Fantastic. Just two, uh, some last questions sure. on uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy. You know, in your whole career, you've spent a lot of time across the FinReg fiscal policy and monetary policy spectrum. So, you know, one, on the fiscal side, housing relief. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of things since sort of the global financial crisis and Great Recession era, housing relief, mortgage finance, uh, you know, for mortgage finance homeowners, rental units, you know, we've seen, um, you know, uh, one sort of regime then, you know, we've seen sort of uh, another new one appear in this COVID-19 era. I'm curious, like, you know, do you think that um, that sort of, and, and on top of housing relief, just in general, um, you know, fiscal relief, transfers, stimulus checks, uh, you know, PPP, um, you know, all these things, and you know, even the infrastructure um, bills that you know we we saw in the Great Recession era, which maybe you know, were a little uh, not trouble ready <laughs> in, in Obama's yeah, terms. Yeah, we seem to have forgotten all that. What do you think the you know the big fiscal policy mistakes uh, have been, and what do you think has, has gone well? I, I mean, the mistakes are probably easier to identify. I mean, first of all, um, the length and the magnitude. So, for instance, you know, we had a shock COVID, but it was pretty clear to me by June, July of 2020 that we were already seeing a strong recovery in the job market. So, both from a monetary and fiscal standpoint, you should have been pulling back at that point. You know, and to the extent that the monetary was also financial stability, you know, I kind of put it this way, and I said earlier, that part of the monetary response was to assist, you know, distress in both the treasury and in the agency market. Well, it only takes a couple of weeks for, you know, people to dump their MBS book onto the Fed. This is not something you need to do for two years. So I think by late summer 2020, we already should have seen a turn to the direction that both the Fed and fiscal policy was taking. Um, you know, certainly having better targeted, I mean, I certainly don't think that higher income households needed the stimulus payments. Uh, as we also know, there were a rather large percent of households that were getting more, they were making more uh, unemployment uh, with the plus up than they were even working. And of course, you know, in April, May, maybe we didn't really want them to work, but certainly by July. So I think again, talking now, July 2020. 2020, yeah. So yeah, I, I was in, by 2021. There was there's no rationale. There's no real economic rationale for these approaches by 2021. We'd already seen most of the job recovery. We were in a strong recovery. 
Um, you know, people were through the worst of it. Um, and, and again, we had some sense of what the light at the end of the tunnel started looking like. So I, I think most of it was poorly targeted. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, the PPP approach of trying to keep people attached to their jobs made sense. Um, I think there's some problems with PPP, but the overall approach was probably the right one. The overall approach with assistance was probably the right one, but again, not, not well targeted uh, and lasting too long. Um, and so, but I think the things we did get clearly right was the approach, not just a mortgage assistance, mortgage forbearance, but the way that was done, you know, across the board where it really was forbearance rather than forgiveness. And obviously in the student loan space, we've now gone from forbearance to forgiveness. Uh, and, I, and, and so some of this really is, um, how do you make sure that these policies are targeted to the problem at hand? You know, and uh, I worked, you know, not only on the financial crisis stuff when I was there, I worked on Katrina stuff when I was in the Hill response. And you see this kind of after every crisis where, you know, if you can channel the overall manual, never let a crisis go to waste. This is the frustrating part to me is that rather than focusing on how do we have policies directly targeted to the crisis at hand, where we can get people back on their feet, it's often used as a cover of how do we grab as much as we want for favorite constituencies. Uh, and certainly that's what we've seen. And it's obviously extremely disappointing. And I think in the long run, for those who want to be able to build the legitimacy of, of, a, of a quick government response to crises, should really be concerned because if the public looks at this and every crisis response just gets characterized by looting and theft and, and, and reward a special interest, and you're going to undermine the credibility and the public support for those things in the long run. So to me, uh, again, too much, too long. Uh, and that's not to say the alternative was not nothing, because I think in, you know this is really the topic of my book, which is how can you provide a response? How can you have it targeted to the question at hand and how can you do it low cost? So for instance, during my time at FHFA, we provided assistance to almost 3 million households um, and we targeted it in such a way and structured in such a way that we recovered almost all the cost of it. So we didn't add to inflation, we didn't add to um, deficit, we covered it within the mortgage market and we provided assistance targeted to those who needed it. So I, I think that hopefully the, that, that framework of the book can be adopted in the future and used not just in the mortgage context, but any context, because there is a right way and a compassionate way to do it. And then there's just the way we've always done it. Well, I'm super excited to read the book and Thank it's a uh, shelter uh, for the storm. One last question, monetary policy. Any thoughts on the current inflationary environment, the Fed and sort of global uh, monetary policy reaction uh, to it? Um, one, do you um, subscribe to a certain view in terms of you know what were the sort of primary causes of inflation? Not uh, not something sure. being debated enough, in, no, in my opinion. That's, but that, that's fair. and do you think the Fed you know could have reacted sooner or in, well, what do you, how would you, how would you assess? The Fed's I, I, overall response. I, I think the Fed has been way too slow on, on, on this. And again, my view is they really started sort of normalizing, not tighten, normalizing in the second half of 2020. It was clear we were through the worst of it. And this is often the problem. I think this was the problem post 9-11. I think this is the problem post 2008. Is that rather than just going in and dealing with the near-term issue of distress in the financial markets, our distress in the economy, the Fed just keeps the foot on the gas for years on end. And then by that point, it's fed into asset prices, it's distorted the financial system. So again, often what should really be three to six months of assistance ends up being two to three years. Uh, and the Fed just repeatedly makes this mistake over and over again. 
Um, and so to me, uh, again, I, I, it's, it's certainly not the way I would have done it. And again, I would have provided assistance. Um, so all that said, uh, the debate about whether this is primary fiscal, I mean, to some extent, yes, I think we overdid it on the fiscal side, but I think the Fed accommodated that. You know, had there been, the Fed certainly could have on its own offset all the inflation coming from the fiscal side. They chose not to. They chose to accommodate it. So to me, you know, I think the kind of like, you know, who's the blame here? And of course, the Fed bears some blame. And as you remember, certainly in 2020 and beyond, you know, the Fed was some of the loudest voices for fiscal assistance. You know, go big, can't do too much. Yes, you can do too much. And so, so again, I think the Fed really kind of missed the ball here. And I think was extremely behind the curve. That said, uh, you know, I mean, we've started to see last several months money growth come back to much more normal. Um, and so looking at money growth, uh, looking at other indicators, I do think we're getting a moderating of, of, of inflation. Do I think the Fed is going to be at a 2% target by the middle of 2023? No, I don't. Um, but we may be 2024, 2025 back to a sort of 2%. Um, but I think we, fingers crossed, may well be past the worst of it. But it's also certainly important to keep in mind, um, people still aren't going to like 5% inflation or 4% inflation. So I think we've got a ways to get there. Um, I think this is a real test because while Powell and many members of the Fed have said the right things, we really have seen almost no unwinding of the balance sheet. And quite frankly, I think they are doing the order incorrectly. I would unwind the balance sheet before I would have raised short-term rates because you risk, you know, intentionally or unintentionally inverting the yield curve, which have, has lots of adverse consequences for the financial system. So to me, until we really start to see, you know, some some significant change in the balance sheet, then, then I'm going to, you know, color me skeptical until we get there. So it's you know, I, it's a wait and see at this point, but obviously I wish them success in this. Nobody wants to have inflation. Nobody wants to have a hard landing. But I do think that this was, all of this was avoidable and foreseeable and was foreseen by a number of people. Uh, so, you know, even if the Fed manages to pull out of this, I don't think we should be doing victory laps because all of this could have been avoided. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, just starting to see uh, you know, inflation expectations start to come down a bit uh, and, and maybe some evidence that inflation is starting to slow down. You know, you see the market, you know, uh, react jubilantly to these, uh, you know, uh, the, these individual prints. I mean, so it's also so interesting, too, uh, just on the fiscal side, how we went from a decade of talking about uh, – Secular stagnation and there not being enough demand. Not everyone was talking about this, but yeah, I mean, but, I, I yeah, was so many people. Skeptical. I, I felt like that now we've gone to this place yeah. where you know there's too much demand. I, I feel like just over the span of a couple of years. Uh, you know, I think if you go back, you know, you really look at the policies that were put in place in 2017, 2018, 2019. You know, I think we illustrated that secular stagnation was not real. Um, we showed that you could have increases in productivity. We showed that you can actually turn around labor force productivity, labor force participation. And we showed that you can- And real wages. In real wages and real wages at the bottom and show that you can grow the economy in a non-inflationary manner. You know, and so to me, I think we've got the demonstration of it. Anybody who, who doesn't 
think that the policies of 17 to 19 works, you know, doesn't want him to believe it. You know, it was the ARP and, and sort of successive fiscal bills layering on that uh, sort of drove uh, more of the inflation side of things and then the demand gained to yeah, where it's... And, and of course, some of this is just the, the misinformation and the and the economic illiteracy of so much of the conversation. The one that probably grates me the most is that, I mean, you had this entire campaign of trying to characterize the 2017 tax reforms as, as geared toward the rich when, of course, they made the individual side more progressive. You know, to me, when I was certainly coming out of grad school, it was widely accepted that the, you know, corporations were pass-throughs and the burden of the corporate tax was borne by workers and, and shareholders. And so the willingness to play on the of, of misperception. Uh, I mean, who thinks that we really need a global corporate tax cartel by governments when the optimal corporate tax rate really should be zero? Right. Um, we, you know, so I do worry. Um, I feel I, like it's an optics thing there. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, I, I don't think you know any reasonable person. You know, you know, doesn't true. think that 180 countries and, and all their legislatures are going to yeah. pass a 15 percent corporate minimum tax. But you know, I, every so, executive will latch on to the horrifying like corporations. Know, fully know about the inefficiency of the corporate tax and say otherwise is, is a disappointment. I, I do believe that we it's we we've thrown away decades of economic and painful experience, you know, whether it's MMT or whether it's thinking that, um, you know, that, that, that marginal tax rates don't matter for behavior or, or thinking that, you know, everything's a monopoly. I just kind of feel like we're, you know, we've entered a dark ages in terms of economic policy, to be frank about it. And I do think the profession, you know, really needs to re-engage uh, because at the end of the day, good economic policy matters in terms of living standards, in terms of equality, in terms of growth. Um, and so, and of course, there's the set-aside issue of, you know, you look, when we were doing mortgage finance reform in 2008 that led to FHFA, the issue that Barney Frank and Nancy Pelosi fought hardest for and wanted the most was to expand the loan limits to include richer people. And the fact that so much of government, whether it's student lending, whether it's mortgage lending, whether it's the SALT debate, really Mortgage is, interest deduction. Yeah. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm just so proud that we were able to lower the mortgage interest reduction as well as SALT tax 2017. But the fact that so much of economic debate on the left simply becomes about how do we loot government on the behalf, on the behalf of college-educated elite, rather than any sort of like, how are we actually trying to grow this economy for everybody? So again, it is... Um, this is the most depressing era of economic policy I've ever lived through. So I'm hoping that the counter reaction to that will get us back on course um, where we can have a, a prosperous economy because it's doable. Again, I think we showed uh, 2019's best economy in my lifetime. By, and I think that's fair to say by any objective standard. And I think we can get back to that with the right sets of policies. Well, I think that's uh, a wonderful uh, a vision of, of hope for the future. And it is sad that we uh, have to sort of, uh, or, or a number of people have to sort of either relearn or, or learn these lessons for the first time uh, through, uh, through disasters, uh, perhaps like the inflationary one that we're going through today. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure having you, Mark. And, and uh, it's amazing here uh, to hear uh, someone who's led such a, uh, an important reform at FHFA, uh, who's worked in... Uh, uh, the White House and has been part of, uh, you know, selecting 
uh, Fed governors and and in yourself who you know have been considered for a Fed governorship in the past. It's a real uh, pleasure to uh, hear uh, your experience and, and views on all these things. Thanks so much, Mark, for joining us. Our guest today has been Mark Calabria. Cato Institute Senior Advisor and former FHFA Director and author of a new book, Shelter for the Storm, coming out in the first quarter of 2023, which you can pre-order today on Amazon. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.